How do the world's top financial services firms repel sophisticated hackers and nation-state actors? Join Looking Glass product manager Dan Martin and me, Security Ledger Editor-in-Chief Paul Roberts, for an introduction to Scout Threat. It's a threat management platform that helps security analysts streamline their work and extract the maximum value from threat intelligence. You can register now by going to securityledger.com slash adversary. This is the Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, the Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast, the Norwegian firm Tailit had their GPS smartwatch for kids called out by government authorities for software insecurities. It could have been a fatal blow. Instead, the company says it was a blessing. We'll hear this story of IoT security redemption in our second segment. But first... Troy Hunt has made a name for himself, calling attention to massive data leaks, and through his tool, Have I Been Pwned, which will tell anyone if their username and password have been leaked online. But even by Troy's standards, the trove of email addresses, passwords, and other data he disclosed last week was impressive. A 773 million strong archive of credentials he dubbed collection number one. It was a kind of breach of breaches, a collection that represents the sum total of many different leaks and credential thefts going back years. But Hunt said even though the data is old, collection one still poses a serious risk today. In this interview, Troy talks about subsequent credential dumps he has come across since publicizing Collection One last week. Troy Hunt, welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. So uh, we're talking to you, obviously, about the huge breach that you unveiled this past week. You're calling it Collection One. Maybe start off by telling us a bit more about where this massive trove of data, which you say is more than two billion records in all, comes from. Yeah, I mean, I guess the first thing there is it's obviously a collection of different Breaches. I mean, it's not just one thing that we can attribute back to one provider. It's it's many, many different incidents that have occurred over many years. And what sort of makes it special is, is the amalgamation of so much data from so many different places in, into one massive collection, which, which of course is called Collection One. So that, that's probably the, the first thing to be really clear about. Uh, and then in terms of, of how it was discovered, uh, look, look, this looks like it's been floating around for a while. Um, some of the subsequent discussions with people said, look, we've, you know, we've known about this for some time. I guess what sort of brought it to the fore for me was, was having multiple people earlier this month pop up and say, you know, hey, have you seen this? And, yeah, whether or not it's been there for a while or not, once you start to see more chatter about it and it starts sort of being socialised further, uh, obviously it's getting broader reach. And if it gets broader reach, then inevitably it's used more frequently to take advantage of the people who are in there. Interestingly, also, after publishing, a number of people popped up and said, you know, that's like, that's collection one. There's collection two, three, four, and five as well, uh, which which I now have not have to decide what to do with. So in many ways, this is sort of the tip of the iceberg of this collection. At the end of the day, if it's just an amalgamation of different individual incidents, who knows how many more out there that do the same sort of thing anyway. Troy, you're calling this collection one, but you're saying that there are others out there, two, three, four, five. So is that data that you have but haven't parsed, or is there more data out there that you haven't even collected yet? Well, it's both now. And in fact, I, I had 
I suspect, and, and I've just been a bit overwhelmed by messages and emails, but it looks like probably dozens of different people send me links through to collections two, three, through five. So that is now data that, that I have. I, I haven't looked at. I'm not sure how unique it is compared to the other data. Uh, and, and frankly, we're, when we're talking about that sort of volume as well, I mean, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of gigabytes of additional data, just the processing of that alone in terms of extracting it out into a usable format and then reconciling it against the data that's already in the system. It's a non-trivial exercise, so I'm going to have to figure out what to do with that now. It's really interesting. I mean, I was curious reading your blog about how huge these data sets are. It must just be a, a massive job to try to clean and parse 2 billion records. You're right, and to your last point, I do often think about that. It's it's a bit of a difficult thing, though, to, to sort of delegate uh, because at, at the end of the day, even if I did that, I'd still need to be certain personally before that data got loaded because ultimately it's, it's sort of my reputation on the line if it's if it's not right or if it's misrepresented, and you know that's maybe that's something I need to let go of in time. But uh, I'm always a little bit cautious about that. And then in terms of the effort, well. Yeah, it's, it, it's a hard thing. I mean, if, for argument's sake, it was one single very, very large data breach, at, at least it would it would probably be consistent in terms of the way that data was dumped out. Even parsing this one, it was a combination of, yeah, that there were sometimes that the records were delimited by a comma, uh, sometimes it was a, a colon or a semicolon, sometimes it was a space, sometimes they were uh, SQL insert statements. So I had to sort of find this, this sweet spot of how much effort should go into the parsing versus how long the the whole process should take. Uh, And inevitably, there will be some, in isolation, large number of records which are badly parsed. Uh, But as a percentage, I'm pretty sure it's a very small percent, probably less than 1%. But it doesn't really matter either. I mean, it doesn't matter if there's a bit of junk in there. It's not like we have to have this data totally clean. We just need a way of people being able to search for their email address, see if it's in there. And in terms of the password side of it, you know, have a list of passwords which have been used before. And if there's some junk in there, well, that doesn't really matter. If you're enjoying what you're hearing on the Security Ledger podcast and listen to us on iTunes, do us a favor and give us a good review using the iTunes app. Your reviews help increase the profile of Security Ledger podcasts on the iTunes platform, which allows us to reach more listeners. So, Troy, when we see that 772 million number, that's the number of username and password combinations that you extracted from that larger set of 2 billion records. But of that, you say that there were just 21 million unique passwords in that collection. Why so few unique passwords, given how many credential sets there are? Yeah, correct. And uh, I guess the interesting angles for this, uh, you know, first of all, how was this data stored originally? So were they were they stored in plain text? Was it with cryptographic hashes? If the latter, then was it a, a good hashing algorithm or a bad hashing algorithm? <laughs> probably the latter. <laughs> probably would have been bad. But, and again, sort of once it's amalgamating data from different sources, the reality of it is it's probably a little bit of everything above. Uh, it, it is kind of interesting to, to look at those numbers and say, well, there's you know, 773 million unique email addresses, but only 20-something million unique passwords, because that sort of tells you something about the prevalence of, I guess, how bad the password choices are, because now you've got multiple different people inevitably choosing the same passwords. You know, there's going to be multiple instances of, you know, QWERTY <laughs> as a password or other very predictable patterns. So it's, 
it, it's not a very positive endorsement of our password practices. Uh, and really, this is kind of the point. If, if you think about why people create these lists, well, they're creating them to try and help people break into other people's accounts. And, and what you really need for that is plain text passwords because that's what you're going to be testing against someone's Spotify account or their eBay account. Sure. Uh, hashes wouldn't do a lot of good. <laughs> you know, someone's still then got to go through and crack them. So that's just incredible that there are so few different passwords for this huge population of accounts. And like you said, it would suggest that our password game is not as strong as we would like, that strong, unique passwords, as you and others have encouraged us to use for a long time, are generally not getting used. Yeah, correct. And, and I get a, a good sense of this. Every time I come across a new stash of passwords and I, I take that, I look at the collection maturity and this, this sort of pwned passwords have I been pwned and you know there'll be a new stash of passwords and I'll see how many of them are already indexed within this system and, and it's usually a very large proportion of them so it's, it's almost like we're sort of exhausting the character space of, of commonly used passwords and new incidents really aren't showing us a lot in the way of actual new passwords. And Troy, the sites where this data was being accessed and traded online, what do we know about those locations and how the data is being trafficked on them? I think that's sort of the interesting question, right? So how does this stuff propagate? Uh, and, and I referenced a possible hacking forum, which is one location where this sort of stuff tends to appear very quickly. Inevitably, there are, there are other locations that people pointed me to since then where there are literally discussions on publicly facing clear forums. They're the same sort of forum software where you go and comment on, you know, like cooking or knitting or something very benign. And there's people talking about, yeah, how can we share this data between us and basically screw with the lives of hundreds of millions of people. Uh, and then there are just multiple places where that happens. Obviously, these, these forums, plenty of closed channels as well, plenty of people redistributing it, yeah, probably via dark web forums and encrypted chats and everything else mm-hmm. on a more one-to-one sort of basis. And, and the reality of it is it just sort of becomes part of almost sort of the, the popular culture of, of hacking where it's, it's just a known resource that's just distributed towards or between many, many people over and over again. So someone who is looking to break into an online account, this would be a resource for them to maybe take a first swing at it. Yeah. So we've got this email account or username and a password. Let's try those across some other accounts and see if the person reuse them. Absolutely. And, and, you know, that's precisely the same sort of thing that legitimate penetration testers do as well. I mean, that they're going to take dumps like this as if they have an engagement where they need to try and, and gain access. And they're going to see if, uh, you know, if, if, if Bob at the company actually uses the same password as he did in, in a list like this. <laughs> and very often that will be the case. Or some sort of slight deviation of, of that password. So it, there are certainly cases where these lists are used in more legitimate purposes, but inevitably this does become a source of, uh, of reference, if you like, for trying to figure out what credentials people use. Is there any information now on the sites that were involved in this breach? So a bunch of the file names indicate potential sources, or maybe the right word to use here is alleged <laughs> sources, because without going through and actually verifying them, it's quite possible a bunch of this is fabricated. The original post that was made to this forum as well did link through to a, a list of around about 2,800 different sites, again, allegedly where the data was from. So it, it seems to be a really broad mix. There's some stuff in there which are certainly well-known, well-established data breaches, things that are in Have I Been Pwned already. In the blog post I wrote, I mentioned triple O web host. 
uh, I think they were about 2015 when they got uh, they had the data breach. Yeah, so that's a legitimate incident, and, and their passwords are in plain text as well, which sort of then helps explain why that list of, of uh, passwords is what it is. But there's a bunch of other stuff there as well, which in many cases hasn't been seen before. And in fact, I had multiple organisations reach out to me and say, look, look like we're on this list. Uh, we do not know of any data breach. You know, like well, what's going on? And, and now, now, of course, they sort of have to go through and investigate and see whether it's legitimate or not. And, and this may be the catalyst for them having to do their own breach disclosures as well. Wow. If you just have a look through the list, you'll get a sense of just how varied it is. I mean, it's, it's everything from very mainstream, well-known services through to little forums or basic services, some of which are probably no longer even around, which were legitimately breached. They mm-hmm. didn't know about it until now, and you know, this was sort of the penny drop moment for them. So when we look at collections two, three, four, and five, is it your expectation that there will be a lot of overlap here? I mean, at a certain point with this many credentials, do you reach a point at which you have basically all the email addresses and passwords that are out there yeah. and these collections all start to merge into one? Well, it's kind of like what's the saturation point, right? Like, like when do you get to the point where you go, that's it, that's all the email addresses in the world, and we're done. Well, p- people joke and they say, when are you just going to like replace Have I Been Playing with a big sign that says, yes, <laughs> you have been and just move on. Um, I- I've got to have a look at what that overlap looks like. I mean, certainly w- within just this collection one, as far as Have I Been Pwned goes, Have I Been Pwned is mostly interested in either unique passwords or unique email addresses. There was a lot of redundancy. I mean, my own email address was in there with the same password about six times over. So when we look hmm. at these numbers and yeah, I think I said in the blog post the total number of records is something like 2.6 billion, you know, billion with a B. That then distills down to 773 million unique email addresses. And, yeah, it's, it's always sort of a subset of the larger number. So I need to try and figure out sort of how unique this is compared to all the stuff that's in there already. Uh, and it just, yeah, I, I'm not clear yet. And, and the reality of it is with my travel and everything as well, it's probably not going to happen for, for a, a number of weeks yet either. I mean, you know, obviously the question you always ask is what's to be done or how do we prevent breaches like this and get people to protect their passwords better? What protections do you recommend both on the corporate side? And then what about the individuals? What can they do if they were involved in this breach? And frankly, given the size of it, they probably were. So for the organizations that were breached, uh, inevitably these breaches always happen because there's some sort of software flaw or some mistake that's made. So for example, someone's built some code that's got SQL injection in it. Um, Stop doing that. (laughs) That's a very, very well-known pattern. So there's that side of it. We see a lot of things at the moment, like exposed Amazon S3 buckets, which is misconfiguration. So someone hasn't put passwords uh, on the buckets and data gets stolen. So that stuff's sort of very uh, very obvious and preventative. In, in terms of when people do get their hands on the data, you know, all of this has got plain text passwords in there. And as I said before, either the passwords are stored as plain text or weak cryptographic caches. Now, yeah, we, we know, and it's very, very well established in the industry, how we should be storing passwords today. And when that's done, you don't have situations where a significant portion of them are getting cracked if they get stolen. So all of that's very sort of preventative stuff on behalf of, of the organization that loses the data. And then there are sort of easy, cheap solutions, like using the phone password service to, to block passwords mm-hmm. that have been exposed before. Uh, and there are much more sophisticated services, which you end up end up paying quite a bit of money for. 
so in the blog post I mentioned a, a company called Shape Security. So they they build services to stop this sort of thing from happening. And you know you pay a lot of money for that, but but they are, they seem to work very effectively. So there's, there's sort of the, the two sides to it. And then on the individual side of it, the, yeah. the thing I keep coming back to is that this is only newsworthy and it's only of any value whatsoever because people have reused passwords. And it, it, it's almost sort of a, a trivialization to say it, but if we stop this password reuse thing, then stuff like this would just become completely pointless. You know, it's like, well, so what? You've got a great big list of passwords. They're only ever going to work in the one place that, that password is used because it's not going to appear anywhere else. Yeah. Now, the reality of it is we're not going to solve that problem easily. That's a much harder thing to to sort of get the masses using a password manager, but, but that would completely invalidate the value of the data. It's really true. I mean, I can tell you from personal experience just talking to a family member recently who was, you know, advanced in age, but tech and fairly security savvy. So I was helping him to use a online password manager and enable two-factor authentication for that. And in the process, realized that while he's using a password manager, he's not actually using secure passwords. He's just reusing the same old password or uh. you know, slightly modified versions of a password for each site. I mean, one of the things that struck me is that the concept of having a unique, strong password per site, one that you don't just carry around in your head, is still pretty alien to people. You know, I think that most people are aware that they should have strong and unique passwords, but they just don't do it. And, and when I say that, I, I, I say it because a combination of anyone that works in a corporate environment just gets drilled with security training, the, the same inane, boring security training, like year after year. I certainly had to when I was in a corporate environment. Uh, so and, and they hear about it there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, we're constantly reading about it in mainstream consumer news and we're seeing it on the TV and whatever else. Like, we see this stuff over and over and over again. But I think the gap here is that it just doesn't stick. I don't think people take that on board and change behaviour, uh, probably in part because they, they say, well, you know, this, this maybe doesn't affect me. I haven't had an account takeover or anything like that. Uh, and in part also because th- there is this barrier to entry. Um so we normally hear this guidance about, hey, go and use strong, unique passwords. Good luck. And it's left there. And, and then inevitably people are like, well, this is actually too hard because it turns out that I have dozens, if not hundreds, of separate passwords. Uh, and, and we often don't have the, we don't sort of have the solution part of the discussion with, with the problem part. So people right. say, look, you know, the problem is you're reusing passwords and the weak don't do it. But they're not saying here's the solution. And, and I laugh. Everyone will see this in an enterprise. I was in a bank recently doing a talk, and I was talking to the CISO there, and they've got all the posters up, you know, strong, unique passwords, all that. And I sort of said to them, like, do you give people password managers to help you do this? And he's like, oh, no, we don't do that. And I'm like, well, how do you actually expect them to implement the guidance that you're giving them? Because their brains are not going to be able to hold yeah, that right, information. Yeah, right, right. So it really feels like we're sort of missing an essential part of the of the education process as well. But I, I am seeing more organisations use enterprise-grade password managers as well. You know, yeah. they are actually saying, look, we're, we're going to put you know, one password, for example, on every desktop in the organisation, uh, and we're going to train people on how to use it. And I'm sure that that doesn't just magically fix the problem either, but it starts to move us in the right direction in a pretty significant way. Troy Hunt of uh, Have I Been Pwned, thank you so much for coming on again and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. No worries. Troy Hunt is the founder of HaveIBeenPwned.com. 
Up next, we're used to hearing stories about connected device makers getting caught out with shoddy device security, insecure applications, dodgy data collection practices, or frankly, all three. But after the headlines have faded and the conversation has moved on, what is the best way for connected device makers to move on themselves? Often, it's by closing up shop or by making apologies and then more or less continuing as they were, hoping not to get caught again. That wasn't the case for the Norwegian device maker Tailit, however. In our second segment, we speak with Martin Hagen, the CMO at Tailit, about how his company used the discovery of a host of security flaws in a GPS smartwatch it was selling for kids to accelerate security transformation at the company. According to Hagen, many of the biggest risks connected device makers face come from third parties, the hardware and software suppliers they rely on to help create their product. Yeah, my name is uh, Martin Hagen, uh, and I'm a CMO uh, of Tailit Technologies. Uh, Tailit, we're a technology company. We're based in Trondheim in Norway. And we developed GPS trackers. Uh, we started out in 2016 developing uh, firmwares and applications for the tracking devices and uh, uh, tracking application. And uh, yeah, we started selling GPS watches for kids back in 2016. And we sold around 18,000 units that first year we started. And uh, just because you said it, I should ask you, you know, how's the weather up there where you are? <laughs> yeah, it's Norway, you know, it's cold. Uh, right now it's a blister outside, I'm pretty sure. It's snowing sideways and it's uh, minus seven degrees Celsius. I don't know what uh, what's that is Fahrenheit, but pretty cold. The subject of GPS security is, is coming up quite a bit. There have been stories about all the GPS tracking that uh, your mobile applications do, again, often without users being aware of it. It's become a huge security and privacy issue. I guess you know, uh, you guys know, what what is the technology behind this? And to the extent that um, phones and other devices, Internet of Things devices, are using GPS technology, like, what are we talking about, really? What yeah, that's a great question. Uh, like you said, uh, GPS tracking is uh, almost in everything these days. Like uh, refrigerators, printers, everything you don't really think about might have this kind of location-based technology behind them. You don't think about printers moving around that much. No, but, you don't uh, really. But yeah. <laughs> they still tie down to your location, for example. And uh, yeah, you can find out a lot of things about the uses of a printer, actually. And it's not uh, really something you think about securing that much because who would hack a printer? But you would be surprised the amount of information you could get from it. A lot of people uh, usually pick uh, like brand uh, of uh, brand GPS trackers and uh, products from China that are pre- pretty weak. They just rebrand it and sell it. You know that is basically what's happening in major electronics uh, around the world in the uh, GPS market. It's yeah, poorly secured. Uh, they're usually a Chinese application behind it. Yeah, around the uh, the EU GDPR rules that came out last year. We found out everything was tested here in Norway, especially, and we found out how really badly secured everything is and how easy it actually is to get uh, access to it. I was shocked myself. I knew it was bad. Uh, I didn't know how bad it was. Like a lot of the information from uh, different applications, uh, you can find it online by just Googling it. You would think there was some authentication behind it or getting your hands on information, but a lot of it, uh, it's just out there to, uh, to grab. When device makers uh, are looking to implement GPS technology in their device, how do they go about doing that? What hardware and software is typically involved in that? And I guess, are there many different providers of this technology or, or, or a smaller number? 
Yeah, for example, if you're looking at products, uh, you have two different, usually the main types. You have the, the GPRS trackers that use uh, the GSM network, the same as the mobile network, uh, and you have Bluetooth trackers. So Bluetooth trackers, usually they're not that complicated, connected with the Bluetooth on your phone, uh, but it only works a couple of uh, 30 or 50 meters, I think, uh, from your location. They're constantly upgrading the location, but it's still pretty limited. So the GPRS, uh, it has global range depending on what kind of a cellular connection you have in the GPS device. Our devices, for example, they use SIM cards. So that's the main types of tracking you use. And these usually have senders and receivers. But the information sent between those uh, coming out of China these days, uh, they're not secure at all. Uh, most of them can be intercepted. You can relocate. You can send information where you want and uh, uh, manipulate, I mean, like uh, the results uh, that are being sent between the devices. Uh, that is where one thing that was uh, a huge focus now in Norwegian media uh, the last year. And we got hacked uh, in our watches. That was how everything started. The government actually hacked the devices. Uh, it got a lot of traction in the media, of course, because uh, when it's GPS watches for kids, so it's your kids' location. Uh, not only your own location, but if it's your kids, it's, uh, the media t- picks it up even more, you know. So this got the focus. They uh, bought uh, our watches, uh, not only ours, but every GPS watch you could get on the Norwegian market, uh, and they hacked it. And they went inside the firmware, they changed it, they found out like the passwords you can get in. But yeah, uh, uh, they found out you can, if you wanted to, in some watches, you could hack in and listen to what the kids were doing. For example, in applications where you have all the information saved, uh, you can reset the passwords without even you needing their email or, or phone number. Password requirements for applications, you could have a password of uh, one number if you wanted, uh, and unlimited tries to hack into the, the accounts. Yeah, super poor yeah, security behind it, so you can brute force in. After we got hacked, we got in touch with a lot of uh, professional hackers, I want to call it, in quotation marks. Uh, they're, uh, yeah, uh, as you said, they're pretty tech-friendly uh, people. They know what they're doing. Uh, they aim to help technology companies such as ourselves uh, to do these types of hackings. And uh, they hacked our, uh, we have five different teams, uh, teams I think, that hacked into our uh, devices. They found the different security breaches and educated us on what these breaches were and how we could fix them. Uh, and because of this, our close uh, relationship with them, uh, one is called Watchcom, for example. Uh, they won the world championship in hacking in 2016. Uh, so they're pretty pretty good with their uh, technology. Uh, but one of the criteria that we got uh, to keep on selling our watches after we fixed them was uh, they helped us along the way. They kept, uh, we had meetings with them. They uh, trained us in what uh, the security breaches were and how to fix them. Yeah, I mean, if you were to characterize them, what were the things that they found? And what was the source of the problems that they found? Were they problems that had their root in um, Tailit's engineering and design of the product, or were they problems that you inherited from third-party, you know, uh, hardware and software suppliers? Yeah, so the the watch that got hacked from us was the one we had bought and rebranded from China. So it was uh, China manufactured and also from a Chinese application. Uh, like we, as I said earlier, we were already developing the firmware and uh, the application for our future trackers. Uh, but these ones were uh, from uh, the Chinese manufacturer. So the, what they found uh, usually was mostly like stuff on the application that was really bad. For example, the personal data, uh, now in the new GDPR rules, the personal data has to be stored somewhere. You have to know where it is. You have to know who has access to it. Uh, and it's got to be safely secured. 
And when it's on a Chinese application, there's really no way to control that. Uh, you can't really tell who has access to it and what is done with it. So that was one of the first things we did when uh, all this happened. We upgraded, we got to test our firmware that we had been developing. Um, we actually got help from the Norwegian Research Council. Uh, they gave us a scholarship for developing this uh, in uh, 2016. Uh, the same scholarship was given to uh, Edvard Moser, I think. He won the Nobel Prize in uh, bio something for uh, research on brains. And so it's like it's a pre pretty prestigious uh, scholarship that's not really given to anyone. Uh, we got to install that on, our, on those watches. So we got to test them out before we started developing our own, uh, manufacturing our own GPS trackers. Yeah, so what they found really for, from our watches was uh, the application, how poorly everything was kept. So we uh, got to move everything over to our own application that we had already been developing. Uh, and we got to install our firmware that was uh, encrypted. We changed the code that the watches send from, from the watch to the server. Uh, they're binary codes which also, uh, firstly, it shortened with sent maybe 700 kilobytes of data between the watch and the server before. And afterwards, we only sent like 27 kilobytes, I think. So it uh, also improved the battery performance a lot. So for us, it was almost like a stroke of luck that this happened, as well as it took out a lot of uh, our competitors, you know. Was there criteria that the government gave you that would then allow you to um, start selling again? Or was it more, you know, we found these problems and we're bringing down the hammer on you? Yeah, of course, one of the requirements, uh, we got a list of requirements. And one of them was, of course, that we continue developing with our uh, cybersecurity people, our companies that helped us educate us on the, the mistakes that were in the cybersecurity, as well as we got other uh, requirement lists that we had to fill out with different routines on how the personal data was stored, everything like that. We had to fill it out and had to be ready by that and that date. I didn't really sit with this myself, uh, but I know there was a lot of technical stuff that uh, they went through. Uh, and it had to be yeah, by their standards if we were to continue to sell them. Uh, yeah, so they, it, yeah, we had to fix it like they wanted it. For the watches and other tracking devices you make now, you're using your own firmware that you develop. In yep. terms of some of the electronic components that go inside, including the sort of GPS transmitter that's actually sending out the signal, are, are those still sourced from you know Asia and China? Uh, or are you sourcing those locally there, either in Norway or in Europe? Yeah, so uh, they are the trackers are still manufactured in China. I don't think you can go around it. Manufacturing it everywhere else in the world would be too expensive. Uh, and China is, of course, the cheapest. But the, the data storage uh, is on a server that we moved to Europe with the application. And so, of course, the transmitters are, are wherever you are uh, with the, the tracker and so on. Was there any point at which you needed to go out to your suppliers in China and talk about these issues or get concessions from them? Yeah, that was when they hacked our watches for the first time. We, of course, had to reach out to them. We had a lot of meetings with them. We still do have meetings with them uh, every mm -hmm. week. But uh, it's like the culture and everything around business-wise is so different. Yeah, the priorities and everything uh, lies more in the quality of the product for them and not as much for safety. And for us, it should be pretty balanced, we feel. It still should be a great product, but it should, of course, be safe to use it. Yeah. Um, so that was one of the things that the watches was originally on the Chinese application. But because of this, we couldn't keep selling them because the application wasn't safe. Uh, so we had to move them to our server. But at first, they were pretty. They uh, didn't want to, of course, move everything to our mm -hmm. server. 
but they quickly realized that their sale will stop on the watches uh, if they don't move it. So uh, they moved it over to our server. But- How important do you think GDPR was the passage of GDPR to you know, raising the profile of these issues? Or do you think that this is, you know, this would have happened with or without GDPR in place? Yeah, this would never have happened without GDPR. Uh, I'm pretty thankful for it. Uh, I know a lot of people uh, like to think of it uh, it as uh, annoying because all of the emails they were getting earlier this year about uh, refreshing their GDPR guide sets and stuff like that. Uh, But yeah. Uh, but I think before the in- the laws of the internet was set in like 1988 or something, I think. And this was the first update of these laws that we had in almost 30 years. It was about time, in my opinion, that uh, something happened. For people who are hearing the stories, uh, you know, reading stories out of Consumer Electronics Show and, uh, you know, maybe contemplating buying a GPS-enabled device, I, I, as I'm speaking, have a Garmin GPS watch on my wrist. What questions should they be asking about security and privacy as they're making their decision about what product to buy? Yeah, our advice to the different consumers that are using these types of products today is just get informed. Uh, learn about the rules, what kind of uh, laws protect me. And get in contact with uh, the people uh, providing the service. They usually have uh, uh, like these security uh, terms and conditions and stuff like that that you can read upon. They explain what is happening to the data, uh, but you could also take uh, contact them and uh, get informed about what happens with your personal data and uh, how they handle it. Uh, our advice is just yeah, get informed about it, learn about it, uh, yeah, and take action because. Uh, as you said, as I said, it, take, it took a lot for things to happen in Norway to even uh, get informed about the GPS watches for kids. Uh, things will probably not happen in the future, uh, in the near future at least, about this uh, information, in my opinion, as uh, how I see it today. It kind of uh, gets uh, looked over a lot. So uh, take it into your own hands. Don't wait for stuff to happen. Uh, yeah, get informed about the rules, actually, and uh, know what happens to your own data. Martin Hagen. Uh, of Tailit in Trondheim, Norway. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Martin Hagen is the Chief Marketing Officer at the firm Tailit. 